You are listening to the Enormo cast. Though another Halloween is behind us, the Crypt Keeper is just now cracking the door for one of the most loathsome creatures to slither forth for the season. That's right, the call is coming from inside your house, and it's... Your pal Dave, who just loves ice climbing. Dude, I just saw a gram of the snot sickle. It's in, and it's fat as fuck. Your message has been deleted. Please hang up and lose this number. And though they may seem like the undead, ice climbers are not in fact impervious to the cold. And that's where Black Diamond comes in. In addition to basically inventing modern ice climbing, Chenard, 1982, look it up. And engineering cutting-edge ice tools, crampons, and ice protection, BD is happy to shroud an ice climber in the best layers for movement and warmth. Slap the Solution 150 Merino base layer against their pasty skin. Then wrap that in the Coefficient Hoodie mid-layer, a personal favorite, or the new Coefficient LT Hybrid Hoodie, which is lighter and stretchier, but you know, just as coefficient-y. Finally, waterproof that beast body with the Liquid Point shell. BD also has the most technical gloves around and the best helmet options, because, well, if you ice climb without a helmet, you probably won't remain undead for long, if you know what I'm saying. So follow Dave or whoever else is stoked to climb icicles to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop to check out the latest apparel and gear for pursuing your frozen dreams or nightmares. Dude, it's Dave again. Where are you at? We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enormacast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Galus. It is November 14th, 2022, about 9.30 here in Colorado, 9.30 a.m. morning sesh. This morning, and this is episode 252 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Fallon Rao. Who is Fallon Rao? Fallon Rao is a young climber, ostensibly from St. George, Utah, though she seems to move around a lot, via Idaho, grew up in Idaho. And I got in touch with Fallon a while back to, to talk about doing a show. She just seemed interesting as a climber and as a person. And then there was a post she put out where she said she had finished her book, writing a book. And so then that was a good impetus to get back in touch with Fallon, and we got this thing done. And let me tell you, she was a joy to talk to. Just uh, cooked along this one. It gets rolling on uh, the usual Norma cast arc, talking about her as a kid, 
growing up in what she called a beauty pageant family and uh, moving out of Idaho, getting into outdoor climbing. But about halfway through, it, it switches. And I guess I have to do a trigger warning or whatever you want to call this content warning is that the subject of Fallon's book and, and the second half of this podcast is a, an abusive relationship that she was in, an abusive climbing relationship. And we don't get into details of physical or sexual abuse. We talk much more about the psychological trauma, the manipulation, and how Fallon got out of that. So if that's something that would dredge up trauma for you, just be warned. That's where we go. And um, it's a it's a pretty uh, obvious switch when we start talking about our book. So just be prepared for that. And one thing that we sort of mention quite a bit, but we don't get into the details of, is Fallon's problems with chronic illness and how that affects her climbing. And, you know, we don't get into too many details. We just kind of didn't have the space. But if you do want to hear about more of her dealing with that and how she's kept climbing through um, syndromes like POTS, Fallon did a podcast more specifically about that. Um, The podcast is called Deliberate Living, and I'm sure it's available at all your podcast apps, but I watched it on YouTube or listened to it on YouTube, a woman named Holly Priestley, and I'll link um, that one in the post. Oh, and while we're talking about YouTube podcasts, people ask me if I'm ever going to do this on YouTube. The answer is emphatically no, I am not. I don't even get it. I don't get why you need to watch people talk because like I said, I just listened to it on YouTube because that's where... That was linked to, but yeah, why do you need to watch us talk at the screen? I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. The Joe Rogan people love that shit, but I do not have time for it. I barely have time for this. Okay. The interview. It's a lovely interview, actually, despite the darkness that we talk about, because when Fallon talks about it, she rolls through it very confidently. She does have that kind of nervous tick that we get sometimes where we kind of laugh and chuckle about dark things. I think Katie Brown did that in her interview. We get that a lot here on the Enormous Cast, and I understand it because I kind of do it too. But it does lighten the load a little bit, which I think is what it's for. So let's do this. A conversation with Fallon Rao, climber, author, daughter, partner, coach, teacher, fiddle player, high pointer, high pointer. You know what that is? She's a high pointer. So many things besides survivor. Squama by Sportiva. A shoe for climbers who are not afraid to send. Climbing obsession. Why are you so obsessed? Squama. Squama vegan. Precision. Stability. Squama vegan. Skin like. Why are you so obsessed? What would you do for the sand? What would you do for the sand? Squama by Sportiva. Squama. What would you do for the sin? Elevate your sending with the Squama and elevate your consciousness with the new Squama Vegan. All the sending 
without the animal-derived materials. Find the Squama at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Squama. What would you do for the sand? You know what I've been doing lately that's been kind of funny is scrolling all the way back to the beginning of people's Instagrams. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you've seen some of my funny high school stuff then. <laughs> well, that's the thing is it's like, it, it's pretty interesting because it's, you know, it's been around long enough now that it's a real like a memoir of a lot of people's lives, especially someone as young as you are, um, mm-hmm. that it did kind of start when you were, you know, still a kid, basically. I mean, high school, which is, I think like, it's interesting, but it's also a little scary when you kind of think about it, you know? Yeah, that, that I think it's... it'll be 10 years that I've had Instagram this December, so, and I'm 25, so 15 to 25, there's a lot of changes that happen there. <laughs> totally, and it's like, I, I just did it with Kaya, too, um, after the fact, actually, or after I'd interviewed her, because I was just, like, like, looking around for pictures and stuff, and then I was like, you know, she's, you know, she's kind of this, like, professional social media person, so, you know, I was using my, I was on the computer, and it like has to load it took me like 15 minutes to like keep loading and load and i wasn't like looking at every picture i was just kind of letting them fly by and like stopping on ones that were interesting but yeah it went all the way back and i don't know it's pretty fascinating that we have this like everyone well not everyone everyone that uses it and has used it since its beginning like literally we have this memoir of our of our lives curated of course but um yeah <laughs> yeah it's so it's kind of my new thing with guests now i'm going to start doing it a deep before dive I talk to everybody. yeah <laughs> the um, archive and just like get all the way back and i mean you know you're not terribly um old looking anyway but like that <laughs> yeah like when you were 15 i mean shoot you looked like 12 like 10 or 12 or something like yeah. that so that was pretty pretty funny so um anyway now i'm probably embarrassing you but um no no it's fine i, I definitely started off my instagram when i was pretty young so you're all good i think i was like a sophomore or junior in high school or something yeah perfectly not awkward time at all i'm sure you were <laughs> i'm sure oh, you were God. extremely confident in your self-image at that point <laughs> i don't like to talk about the braces times it's just bad news bears all around <laughs> that's pretty funny oh. yeah so you know i think with that like as a preview maybe we do go back to the beginning um i read a few things about growing up in idaho um all the way up in mccall i think is what i read at least as a as a very young person which is pretty deep inside of idaho so let's talk about you as a as a young person a little bit and we'll we'll do maybe start with that arc you know growing up in idaho and and finding climbing or finding the outdoors i mean they're all around you um, what was sort of your interface with that, with your family and things like that? Yeah. So I lived in McCall when I was a toddler. My dad was the airport manager there after he retired from the military. So I was actually born in Alaska. My dad was a Coast Guard pilot up there. Um, and then we moved to McCall and we did tons of hiking and camping. My family was always outside. But most of my childhood was actually in Meridian, Idaho, near Boise. And I found climbing through the YMCA there in Boise. Yeah, the YMCA has pumped out a lot of climbers, actually. I've heard that a bunch on the podcast. Um, yeah. It's just having that be the first sort of image of climbing. Um, it's a very safe way to do it and, and uh, a good way to get, you know, some kids to have it pop in their head is something that they can do afterwards. So that, that's kind of a question I always ask, too, is, you know, for the hundreds, maybe even thousands of kids that go through a program like that, that either never do it again or only do it casually. What was it about climbing that popped 
in your head and and made you think about like what am I how am I going to get back on these rocks after YMCA is over (laughs) yeah exactly I took this like winter break camp there with all these other kids I was only six so I was really lucky I found it young because no one else in my family climbs at all I'm actually from like a beauty pageant family so my sisters were like super girly but something about climbing just really hooked me I think I was really awkward at other sports and didn't have much success. When I did ballet as a little girl, I like cut the bow off my tutu and I was like, I don't want to be called cute. I want to be tough. And um, yeah, something about climbing just really hooked me. They made a special exception for me actually to be on the YMCA team when I was only like seven. And I think their minimum age before that was like 10 or 11 or something. So I felt pretty honored to be able to do that. And at that point, it was like mostly teenagers and they kind of just like adopted me in as their little mascot. So I got to travel around and it was a fun team i mean that was back like matt fultz was on the team and like tons of other cool people now that still climb hard and um are pretty big in the community so really fun roots good coaches back then i really enjoyed the ymca team gave me a good opportunity to get started and do a little bit of outdoor climbing just some bouldering around boise but i didn't get to do much real outdoor climbing till i got my license in high school since my family didn't climb all right, so I got I to gotta, um, back up here because you mentioned something that piqued my interest, a, a beauty pageant family. Um, <laughs> what, describe what that is. I mean, I, I have some idea, right? But um, what that yeah. is and how that affected your life if even as you rebelled against it, it sounds like. Yeah, so I'm the youngest of four girls and two of my three sisters did pageants growing up. So I was always in the audience and behind the scenes, you know, watching all their preparation and attending all of these pageants. And it wasn't like the toddlers and tiaras kind of crap. It was like Miss America pageants and stuff. So like one of my sisters was Miss Idaho and she got like first runner up at Miss America. And my sisters were like Miss Meridian and Miss Ada County and Miss Boise and all these random things. So definitely a lot of like glitz and hair and makeup and dresses and girly things and my dad would always tell me I was like the sun he never had (laughs) which (laughs) I kind of took as a compliment because of climbing I was definitely a big tomboy growing up but I've embraced more of my feminine side as I've gotten older that's cool though that you had I mean you had a space in the family that you could occupy that was there either from within yourself or from the family to pressure to also follow in these footsteps or, or you know as a young girl admiring your sisters were you also sort of like partially well I I wish I could do that or I want to do that um I don't think so I never had any interest in doing it I was mortified at the thought of ever getting up on a stage like that but I loved being up on stage at climbing competitions like in the finals when they'd put the spotlight on you like I loved that pressure and I really thrived on that but in terms of the beauty pageant stuff definitely not they primarily did it for scholarships the Miss America program is like scholarship based so that was pretty cool for them but now that they're older, they don't do that anymore. But yeah, it was definitely a weird childhood in some ways. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, I mean, you started competing probably pretty early, it sounds like then, at least locally. Um, how far did that go as far as your, uh, uh, you know, competition career, if you want to call it that, a youth career? Um, how into it were you? And, and did that kind of, you know, create a proxy or whatever for, you know, the the kind of travel and competition that your sisters were in, your family could support you in that, I would suppose. Yeah, um, I loved competing and I really enjoyed like traveling around to do the local comps and stuff. I went pretty far with it, I'd say. I competed from like 2004 to 2015, I think, 
in youth and then collegiate. So I always did the sport climbing series and I occasionally would do the bouldering series, but typically I'd just do like local bouldering competitions that we had in Idaho. But for the sport series, I'd always go to regionals, usually divisionals, and I'd often qualify for nationals, but I pretty much could never afford to go. So I only went one time. I think I was like 11, but um, I really loved doing sport comps. That was definitely like my whole life. I mean, I trained and did everything I could to go to as many comps as I possibly could. Yeah. I mean, what drew you to that, do you think? You mentioned the spotlight. Was it the community? Like what what piqued little Fallon's interest in becoming a comp climber? It was, or was it just the scene and what was available to you as well? Yeah, I think um, once I joined the team, it just was kind of the thing to do. It was just expected. We would just travel to comps. And back then it was really low key. Like we would go to the OG front in Salt Lake for competitions and they would let us sleep on the crash pads the night before. And then we'd wake up and compete. So it was like definitely doing it the dirtbag way with the team. Not like now where everyone travels individually or in like a team van and gets a hotel. Like we definitely had none of that kind of stuff. It was very like, we're going to sleep in the gym the night before. (laughs) And it was definitely more of like a community event um, where we would all hang out and like slackline outside of the comps and make a climbing trip out of it. Like when we'd go to Logan um, in northern Utah, we would climb outside in the canyon after the competitions there. And that's where I ended up going to college, funnily enough. And I had no idea growing up when I would compete there that that was where I was going to end up as an adult. But yeah, I really enjoyed the competitions. Being in the spotlight was fun, but I just liked pushing myself and it was an opportunity to visit other gyms. So the YMCA I was training at was super small. I think the tallest wall was like 30 feet (laughs) and it was, you know, those old school holds and definitely not like the nice modern gyms we have now. So I think traveling to those other gyms kind of gave me the opportunity to expand my climbing a lot more. Like I remember walking into Momentum Sandy for the first time in the mid 2000s and being like, holy shit, (laughs) this is crazy. So that was always really fun to get to travel for that. I mean, I think it seems like there's probably teams from certain parts of the country that are still running that kind of system, don't you think? You know, where climbing isn't such a huge deal or whatever, like having sort of the ragtag bad news bears kind of style team. Um, Because, I mean, honestly, like if as a 10, 12, whatever year old, 13, 14 year old, that sounds like a blast, like to to actually sleep in the gym and like, you know, I don't know, that seems like it would be kind of fun in its own, its own sort of like I said, like bad news bears sort of way, although that's dating me that reference. But um, do you have any idea what that is, Valen? Uh, I mean, I use bad news bears all the time, but I, okay. I don't know what the reference is, actually. I just you use don't? it as a saying. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was an old movie. Oh, okay. based, a little kid's baseball team that were like, they were total losers. Okay. Um, but they were the scrappy ones anyway. It's the yeah, classic, we were- yeah, like the scrappy kids that, that are, have hearts of gold kind of, kind of okay. movie, you know. <laughs> I like it. I'm into it. Yeah, I was on the YMCA team for a long time. And then when I became a teenager, I joined the Urban Ascent team which doesn't exist anymore. Rest in peace. Um, They tore down that gym, but we had a really strong team culture and um, all of us were just like best friends and we'd hang out and do things together. And that was like my whole life when I was a teenager was my climbing team. So definitely a big part of my life. I'd love to just escape and go to Boise and climb there. I worked there in the summers and taught summer camps. And I mean, it was everything to me. Yeah. So, I mean, what was like the hook then for outdoor climbing. And I, I guess there's another question that I'm kind of curious about with um, younger climbers is like, what was your sense of what it meant to be a climber? You know, like, 
we now sort of, I mean, I talk about like a lifestyle and, and that kind of thing and, and where you sort of, you know, and, and I think I read something where you said this exact thing of like, it means that I, you know, where I live is the climbing is important, you know, who I hang out with, who I date, like everything, yeah. it becomes this life. Like, what was your sense of that as a kid? Um, even when you're super into comps, like what the world outside of your little bubble there in the gyms kind of looked like? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think I actually had a pretty good perception of the outside climbing world because of a few reasons. First, I had amazing coaches that were not just gym climbers. They were primarily like trad climbers and people who traveled and made it a big part of their lifestyle. Like they were hardcore climbers who would do anything, you know, to go on trips. And they would talk about the climbing they were doing, like alpine climbing and trad climbing. They would come back from City of Rocks and tell us all these tales about taking whips on camps. And I was like, oh, that sounds so exciting. You know, I hope I can afford a trad rack someday. I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. And then I also loved climbing magazines. So I subscribed to like Rock and Ice and Climbing and Urban Climber. I mean, every time Urban Climber came, I would just like lose my mind. I thought it was the coolest, most rebellious thing ever. Um, you know, like little 10 year old me would just eat that up. And I remember my sister actually would like try to cut the bad words out of it sometimes before I found it when it came in from the mail. And I thought that was really funny. Um, so I had a pretty <laughs> it's good. Funny. <laughs> the funny thing is actually is you're sort of dating yourself now in terms of like climbing media. Cause like a lot of people are like, Oh yeah, right. Urban climber. <laughs> I have no recollection of that being like any risque or like at all like i mean i know it was sort of like a kind of a like a skate culture look at climbing but yeah i mean it didn't even occur to me that like some 10 year old girl would be out there like <gasps> yeah i think there was you some I mean? like crash pad that was called like the bastard or something like that and right. i remember her like cutting that out or something but i mean i got really inspired by that stuff and then you know with the rise of youtube and climbing videos that of course was something i ate up but my first like climbing movie I've ever watched was Vertical Limit. And I watched it with my family as a kid. And I was like, oh, my God, is that what trad climbing is like? Like just watching these bomber number twos randomly ripping out of the rock for no reason. So when I started trad climbing, it was a pleasant surprise that that was not the case. Probably a pleasant surprise to your family as well. That <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these sorts yeah. of things didn't happen. Right. Yeah, because yeah. that's the, the opening scene, right? Where they all, the whole mm -hmm. team gets ripped off the wall. Yeah, and there's definitely. just like shit blowing out in every direction. <laughs> yeah, and they're like cutting the rope and it's yeah. just totally ludicrous. So yeah, <laughs> thankfully I had access to more climbing media than just that. But I also was weirdly into like climbing books. And back then, for some reason, I could never find like rock climbing novels. It was always like about Everest and mountaineering. And so I got really fascinated with that whole side of things. So when I became a teenager, I actually did a lot of high pointing. Um, so I climbed like 49 of the 50 state high points. So I got to do like Mount Rainier and Mount Hood and Gannett Peak and all this cool stuff and get more into mountaineering, which was like a really weird side quest for me on my journey in climbing because <laughs> I don't really do that kind of stuff anymore. But it was really fun for a few years to get to roam around and do that. All right. So I've read that too, the 50, 49 of 50, like the obvious burning question of 49 of 50 high points <laughs> is what are we missing, Denali? Yeah, just an ollie, but it's so expensive. It takes a while. Like, you know, the average team, I think it takes like three weeks to climb. And it's just like a whole event to get up there and make that happen. <laughs> so I haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. It also sounds kind of miserable to be cold for that long. I don't really like being cold. I'm like, I'd rather rock climb in the sunshine, kind of at that 
peak now <laughs> where I'm like, I'd much rather just be like on a cliff somewhere in the sun having a nice time in St. George than like freezing my ass off in Alaska. So we'll see if it happens someday. <laughs> well, you you know, that's something you can do when you're old too. Yeah. Legs and lungs. That's what I always yeah. say. That's that's so funny. Forty nine out of fifty. That's not gonna weigh away on you after a while. But um, <laughs> so tell me, like, this is a total aside from climbing because most of these forty nine are not, um, <laughs> not. I mean, they're not rock like technical. Like even no. here in Colorado, what is it? Uh, it's not massive. Albert mm-hmm. is just a big lump. Yeah, it happens just walk to be higher it. than the other lumps. Yeah, but let me tell me a weird one. Like, I mean, shit. There's got to be some <laughs> something that's kind of strange out there in one of the southern yeah. states or something well or just a actually hill or I think like it's... are there ones you just drive over a pass or something there's a lot that are you drive to like delaware's is in an intersection of like a neighborhood and like <laughs> illinois is in a cornfield and it's on private property so you can only visit these very specific weekends each year and they're like super sticklers about it so I'm actually on the board for the High Pointers Foundation. They are like mostly really old people and I'm like their token young person and I like do their social the media board. and I'm, and I'm like <laughs> remaking their website and stuff. And we actually like try to work with the private landowners and like try to improve access and stuff like that. But yeah, it's such a weird niche thing. And I feel like only like old people usually have the leisure time and money to go do that because <laughs> it's just so obscure. Um, and most climbers aren't interested in that because they're like, I want to go climbing, not hiking. You right. Know? Right. But, are there any yeah. besides Denali? Are there? I mean, Gannett is is that is that that's sort of that's technical, right? Yeah, it's class four, just like oh, okay. you know, like Rainier and Hood, like mountaineering. Montana's Granite Peak. There's a side you can do like a low fifth class up, but we did a third class scramble, so nothing too intense. But it did give me a lot of like good outdoors skills um, and like training for the mountains, like in terms of glacier travel and just like survival <laughs> and outdoor comfort sorts of things. So. I was grateful for that. Living on the road, like how to be a dirt bag and save money. So I learned a lot. How old were you doing this? Uh, 14 to 17. Uh-huh. So. so you had to get, obviously, is, is your dad involved? Like who's, who's with no, was, you in the early days? <laughs> yeah, it was actually my mom. So I grew up with just oh, okay. my dad. And I didn't really know my mom super well, but she was really into hiking and backpacking. She was like, hey, do you want to come do this weird high pointing thing? And I was like, sure, summer road trip. Sounds good to me. I had no idea what I was getting into. Like we climbed like a mountain like every day for like a month. It was ridiculous. But anyway, we ended up doing 49 of the 50. So it worked. Oh, out. you did them together. Yeah. We All were the first, first mother daughter team to do that many. So. Oh, yeah. wow. Awesome. Yeah. So, so you just said, okay, so you grew up with your dad, didn't really know your mom. Tell me, tell, tell me what that meant. I mean, cause I, I just <laughs> like, did you have like weeks with her or did, was there a period when you didn't? didn't yeah. see her at all what was that no that's a good I just, question i mean unless i'm like prying because no you're totally good they got yeah. divorced when i was like three so uh-huh. i lived with my dad full time um my mom would like drive us to like practices for sports or like girl scouts or like stuff like that but i didn't really like have a super strong bond with her growing up you know we'd like occasionally go hiking or she'd drive me places but i okay. didn't like know her super well until we went and did this high pointing together so that was kind of an interesting uh journey for us was it uh, on on the whole a good thing to do together? I haven't talked to her in over three years, actually. <laughs> so kind of a weird relationship. Um, you know, I was raised by my dad for a reason, I think. <laughs> yeah, I definitely learned a lot, though, from her um, on those trips. So it was worth it. It was definitely a net good thing, I would say. Okay. All right. We'll move on. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's just, yeah, it was just sort of a thing you said that I, w- I couldn't just quite let 
get let go completely. I'm always <laughs> listening good. for those things. Yeah. So I've had um, a weird life. You're totally good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not that strange, that part of it anyway. I don't think it's that strange to have, you know, a, a divorce that results in, you know, people moving apart like that. So yeah, totally. But I've got a great stepmom and other sweet people in my life. So it's really nice. Perfect. I just read um, uh, Katie Brown's memoir is about to come out and I just read an advanced copy of it. Um, oh, how was that? Ah, it's not easy to it read. Speaking rough. of moms, um, I don't know if you know her story. Maybe you listen to the Norma cast, but I mean, yeah, that's all I've, in there. Yeah. I read some of her posts as well. I'm really excited to read yeah. it. Yeah. It it's ain't, awesome. yeah, it ain't, it wasn't pretty. Um, yeah. So anyway, you know, you're just like, I think creating this image of this person, this young girl who's like, I don't know, got this adventurous wanting to break out, wanting to sort of do all sorts of things. Like, what do, what do you think was like the basis of that need or that desire? Um, that seems to be a little bit of a black sheep thing too, as far as um, what your sisters w- were doing. Absolutely. My dad was a hunter and an outdoorsman. So even though he wasn't like climber type of outdoorsman, he still was into that kind of stuff. Um, and I grew up reading a lot of books about exploration and mountaineering. So I think that kind of lit a fire in me to want to go do those sorts of things. As well as my coaches talking about their climbing trips, I thought that was always the ultimate goal. We weren't comp climbing like as an end goal. That was never like <laughs> the point of it. The point of it was just to like have fun and go climbing and become better so that we could then become outdoor climbers. Um, and I think it's interesting because a lot of people from that team back then have now become really good outdoor climbers, which is really nice to see that that like comp kid to outdoor pipeline is still going for some teams. <laughs> so yeah, I think that adventurous part of me has survived. I always wanted to be an all around climber. Like that was the impression I got growing up was if you can only do one kind of climbing, you weren't a real climber, which isn't true. But in my mind, I always wanted to be able to do any kind of climbing anywhere in the world. I was, I was like, I want to boulder, sport climb, trad climb, big wall climb, aid climb, alpine climb. Like, walk, I want to do everything. <laughs> walk up snow. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I got over that really quick. <laughs> After a few mountains, I was kind of like, all right, I think I get it. I'm kind of good. <laughs> you yeah. know, this isn't that engaging. But It took me longer, but I did too. Um, <laughs> it took me longer to get over it. But that, that was my same image. It's like you, you, it's like you didn't just do the one thing. And at some point, you had to walk up some snow to like be a, a climber. Like That was part <laughs> of it. You had to, to stand on top of a snowy peak. Right. That was just like the image, right? Because I was reading, I'm sure many of the same books you were reading, only um, a little bit older than you were, but um, more like 1920, but still impressionable. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Those books made a big impact on my life. So I actually now like with the teams I've coached over the last few years, I will always like lend out my books to any of the team kids that want to read them. So I think that's really important to keep like passing that torch of like letting reading inspire these climbing kids made a big impact on me so see if it changes it's funny you, for anything. you say that too because when you said you were like yeah i was like you know there weren't really rock climbing books like stories about rock climbers is all about mountaineering that's totally true like you know i just in or this spring I interviewed this guy jonathan howland who, who wrote, wrote this book native air that's a true rock climbing novel and uh you know i just searched for that kind of book out there and it was slim pickings you know, mm. as far as like stuff that had risen as as literature anyway, as with any sort of literary quality, it was pretty slim, you know, yeah. um, even now I don't, there's just like so much, I think, weight to the, to the metaphor of the mountain. It's like 
authors can't get away from it, you know, in a, in, in a sense. Yeah. It's interesting too, like the book I just finished, I talk a lot about Fitzroy and this poll it had on us and why we went down there. And I mean, it definitely was just always looming. It was always like this huge symbol of what we were trying to do. And even though we were rock climbers, it was weird. Like we were still so pulled to that, I guess, because it combines climbing with mountaineering. But yeah, it was definitely a weird experience for me. <laughs> well, you just, um, you just revealed the book, but I, I want to I linger a little bit before we get okay. to that. Um, <laughs> Because there's like, you know, I just mentioned like the weight of this metaphor of climbing a mountain. It's like, there's also this metaphor of like, you know, the, the hero's journey as it were. And, um, which I think about a lot as a, as a former lit major, you know? Um, yeah. Weren't you like an English teacher or something? I was an English teacher. That's right. Yeah. For a little while, nice. but I had, a, I mean, I have a lit major that preceded that by, um, by a decade at least that I just carry around in my head, you know? <laughs> whatever nice. <laughs> good it does me but when i think about this like you know the the famous one of the famous steps in that is crossing the threshold and whenever i'm talking to someone about their youth and how they got into climbing and the thing that's like fascinating to me is that movement is that is that crossing into where you are no longer on a team you're no longer being coached and so many kids fall away from it then because it you know was there was so much support for it that it, it's not a powerful enough pull for them to just do it on their own. Um, so what did that look like? How did you like cross the threshold, leave home, hit the road, start climbing enough to become an accomplished climber that you are today, um, both in trad and, and sport climbing? Because there, there was a point at which you had to like bust out of the circle, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think when I moved to Logan for college, um, I went to USU. And Logan Canyon has a really deep climbing history, you know, like one of the first 514s in the country was there in China Cave and all of that. So I think moving to Logan really was like crossing that threshold for me. I was 17. I was on my own for the first time. I was in college and I was psyched. Like I wanted to get out and climb every single day. I was like, oh my God, the limestone cliffs are only five minutes from campus. Like I couldn't control myself because Boise has a little bit of outdoor climbing that I would do in high school, but it's pretty limited unless you drive a few hours. Whereas Logan, I mean, I had the climbing right there. So my friend Joey, she was an exchange student that came over. Um, we would go climb like every day in Logan Canyon. And I loved that. And I would get out to City of Rocks all the time, which is one of my favorite areas in the world. It's only like an hour and a half from Logan, which was super nice. So I was just climbing a ton all through college and trying to travel too. Like I would go down to Moab every weekend I got and like work on the crack house. And in college, I also spent a summer in Boulder. And that's where I learned how to trad climb. Um, so that was a big step for me because I was like finally able to branch out. And I always knew trad climbing was kind of the end game because I wanted to be able to climb anything. And if you only clip bolts, I mean, you're so limited. <laughs> you can't do like basically anything in the mountains or certain areas like Zion. I mean, if you don't trad climb, you can't do anything there. So um, that was a huge step for me in college to be able to climb outside consistently and gain new skills like trad climbing, big wall climbing, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you mentioned um, somewhere I was reading that you mentioned that Steph Davis is a a big inspiration to you. When when did high infatuation and 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 Steph come into your life, as it were? Because yeah. I mean, as soon as you're down in Moab, you're sort of in her territory. Um, totally. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about that. It's such an it's such a direct inspiration. I just wanted to ask about it. Um, yeah. Also, because I'm friends with Steph, so I know I'm so jealous. I um. <laughs> you can I be mean, friends with her too. 
<laughs> I've met her once and I'm actually really embarrassed by this, but I started sobbing in front of her. <laughs> I was like, your books meant so much to me. And I was just like crying. It was at the like Seco block or whatever after the OR show one time. Anyway, I yeah, can I only think... <laughs> imagine her reaction. <laughs> she was so mortified, I think, because she's so I, like I shy. Know. Yeah, um, she's terribly shy. Because yeah. I've seen, I've seen maybe not quite that, but I've witnessed so many people like <laughs> come up to her and just even just like to say hi and, and, and like the blood like drains out of her face. And it's just yeah. funny because it's like, God, I hope those people, you know, don't walk <laughs> away like, oh my God, Steph Davis is horrible. When the truth <laughs> is, is she's just like mortified by it all. No, um, no, yeah, she was super nice about it. Okay, but, cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I watched some videos of her and Dean when I was a kid. And then I read her book, High Infatuation. I think I was 18 or 19. And then I read Learning to Fly like a year after that, I think. So really just got obsessed with that. A lot of what she had to say resonated with me. And now especially it resonates with me. Like her relationship with Dean reminded me a lot of my relationship with my ex in a lot of ways. So that was really like comforting almost to kind of find someone who had experienced a lot of the same emotions in a climbing partnership that was also romantic and also very tumultuous. <laughs> yeah. So in somewhere in here, you know, you, you identify as a writer. Um, you know, I, I saw that, you know, listed sort of like as, as part of your resume, as it were, um, your self kind of image. One of the reasons I got in touch is because I saw a post that you were like, I finished my book. And I was like, all right, that's pretty wild, you know? And I mean, we talked earlier about, about getting this done, but that was finally like, all right, let's get this done for real. So tell me about what it, you know, what your writing looks like, um, how you kind of became a writer. And then let's talk about the book, even though it's just a manuscript at this point, <laughs> unpublished, unseen, I think, by, by much of anybody yet. Um, yeah. So this Hopefully is like will be changed soon, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So any any publishers that want to hear, hear see, see uh, Fallon's manuscript, maybe we can get in touch. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> I've been writing since I was a little kid. My sisters would make fun of me when I was like in elementary school. I'd always be writing these little books, um, and then in high school, I ran like a writing center, and I loved to tutor people in writing. And I had great English teachers. I just like super lucked out on my English teachers. So shout out to all of you guys. Like they really taught me like how to write poetry and short stories and memoirs and all these things that ended up serving me really well as a climber when I started writing like trip reports and gear reviews and like poetry about climbing um, and all that kind of stuff. So I entered some like competitions in high school and I won and I was like, whoa, maybe I like could do writing. And I actually wanted to like be an English major, but like, thank God my dad talked me out of that and I did geology. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I never stopped writing. I like wrote all through college. And I still write a lot of poetry, a lot of short stories, and now my book. I had like a climbing poem published last year in the climbing zine, which I was super excited about. But I've never had like a longer form piece of writing published. So this is going to be a new endeavor for me. But yeah, I just love to write about climbing. I love to write about science because I'm a geologist at heart um, and philosophy as well. I really like Stoic philosophy. So writing about that is also something that's helped me cope with a lot of things that have happened to me. Um, I found Stoic philosophy when I was like 17 and it totally changed my life. I didn't grow up religious or anything like that, but finding that philosophy really changed how I looked at the world and how I reacted to the events of my life and processed those events. So I was really grateful for that. And it has so a big like, influence on my book too. You know, everybody sort of uses the word Stoic, but you're talking about deep into the Greek philosophy 
um yeah i've got a real tattoo stuff, of the, marcus aurelius right here right on yeah i was gonna say it's like the real stuff like you know deep deep in the uncut stoicism um is 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 an interesting world let's i know i just like previewed your book but you said that it had something to do with the writing so let's let's diverge real quick and talk a little bit about what that means to you to live your life at least as a modern person right because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times meshing these these philosophies that worked really great like in a rural greek community as a modern person can be tough so tell me what that means to you um yeah and what you draw from it yeah the biggest reason i like started getting into it is because i have a lot of chronic illnesses and health issues um, and i've had a lot of injuries and surgeries and as anyone who has dealt with that kind of stuff knows it's really really difficult like day to day it's easy to complain a lot or feel really down about it a lot but stoicism kind of taught me like we can't control always what happens to us, only how we react to it or what we make out of it. And instead of just like resigning myself to live my life on the couch and like give up, instead it was like, well, this is this is the hand I've been dealt and I can choose how I play my cards. So I'm still going to try to climb. I'm still going to do everything that I can to live my life to the best of my ability. So stoicism really kind of, I guess, helped me cope with that grief that you get from chronic illness and this realization that your life might not look exactly how you thought because of the impacts of your health um, on what you can and can't do. It also really helped me like get through the abusive relationship that I was in, which is what the book is all about, and realize that there was something I could get out of that and I didn't have to let it completely ruin my life. I could just draw on it to like learn lessons and to find new strengths. So stoicism isn't about being stoic in like the sense that we always think of like emotionless. It's about acknowledging your emotions and then managing them and being able to like think logically. Um, and make reasonable decisions that are in your best interest and the best interests of the community around you as well. So I think stoicism is really important for the coaching I do, climbing coaching, and as a teacher, because I now teach science. Um, I think it's important to show kids like an adult <laughs> um, role model, I think, who can like be in control of their emotions and be in control of their reactions, because a lot of the times the people in their lives are very reactionary and unpredictable. Very random rant. <laughs> no, that that's awesome. I mean, that's that's a that's you're you're selling me. I mean, I I've you know I understand it. I've looked at it. I've read a lot of the the writings of Marcus Aurelius from a literature standpoint as well as just interest. So and that that's what I mean. Like the word stoic is has been you know it's just part of language. It's been boiled down to mean one little thing, but it's like there's a way. Like you just said, there's there's much more to the the philosophy that it came from. Um, although yeah. that is, I mean. What we use as being stoic is, you know, it is a distillation still of the philosophy. It still works, but there's more to it. Yeah. Um, A lot of it's about like accepting death and not being afraid of death. And I think that's helpful too as a climber when we talk about risk and how we have this like relationship with death. And it's always kind of there if we're risking our lives, but we're almost like dancing with it instead of fearing it in a way. So I have like a skeleton dancing on my arm, a tattoo of that to kind of remind me that death is coming for all of us, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that you need to make the most of the time that you have. How's your so. tattoo artist? Like, is, <laughs> you're like, can we get a Marcus Aurelius right on here? They're like, a who? A what now? <laughs> yeah, he actually usually does like Japanese traditional. And so I'm okay. really grateful that he's he's done my random black work tattoos. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. A lot so of women some... rolling in for, for the, that Marcus Aurelius design that he did. Ooh. I know he's sold a bunch yeah. of those by now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, he's he's awesome, actually. But um, yeah, 
<laughs> it's yeah. kind of like a what would Jesus do thing, you know? It's like I look down, I'm like, what would Marcus right. do? Sounds so cheesy, <laughs> but it actually like helps me a lot of the time. Cause like I'll just be bitching about something. I'm like, oh, I'm so dizzy because I have pots. This is that's like one of my conditions. And mm-hmm. I'm just like have to remind myself. I'm like, well, at least I can still be out here climbing. Like a lot of people with pots can't do that. So I'm trying to be grateful, I guess, for what I still can do. Right. I mean, as it, it probably it helps you to fight and do the work that you need to do to stay healthy too. Because I think, you know, chronic illness probably just slowly beats you down until like, you know, your, your, your therapist, your doctors, whatever are telling you to do these things. And, and most people just can't manage to do them anymore. Yeah. Um, and there's know, no shame so, in that. Like people who yeah. do become fully disabled, like no shame in that at all. For me, it's just like a matter of like, if I can stay healthy and stay active, it's a lot easier to maintain than if I let it slide and I become really like sedentary <laughs> and like give in to the symptoms, um, at least in my case with my illness. So um, I try really hard to keep doing what I can, even when it's hard. And thankfully, my partner is super supportive of that. And he pushes me a lot to get out and climb and hike and do things like um, a couple weeks ago, we climbed Cathedral Peak in Yosemite. And when I first like got really sick, I thought that was something I would never be able to do again. I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to alpine climb ever again. You know, I just had kind of written that off. But over time, I've managed my illness well enough and had a supportive partner that has made it possible for me to do things like that again. So I'm really, really stoked that I've been able to get back on it, like more multi-pitch climbing and alpine climbing that before I just didn't think was going to be possible for me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm glad you're talking about this. A, because it can be an inspiration, but B, like, you know, it just reminds me that you don't really know what anyone's going through because just looking at you across the screen and obviously looking at your accomplishments and looking at even your social media, which, you know, as, as we all know is, is curated, but I mean, everybody does, that's not like an insult (laughs) to you, but, um, you know, I would never know that I would never know that you're struggling with something like that. I post about it occasionally. Like I try to Mm -hmm. keep it real or whatever. Um, I've always tried to do that because life isn't all sunshine and rainbows and social media can kind of make it seem that way sometimes. So I share the wins, but I also try to share like the tough stuff too. And I've actually had a lot of great connections like on Instagram with other people who have some of the same conditions I do, like POTS and HEDS and um, some of this other stuff. So it's been really helpful to me because we can like share tips with each other. And yeah, I think some people have told me it's been inspiring to them like to see someone who's been able to still push themselves in climbing, um, who's dealing with this stuff. And it's different for everybody, different severity, but it's it's really hard, honestly, like every day just to like live my life <laughs> and like stay alive. But I've found ways to make it work. Like I have to have like 10,000 milligrams of sodium every day, drink these like salt solutions basically and do all kinds of other stuff. But I'm so willing to go to those lengths to stay healthy because it makes such a world of difference in how I feel. Mm-hmm. Would Marcus Aurelius have had an Instagram? <laughs> uh, I think if he had thought it was for the common good, then yes. He, he okay. definitely thought he was a citizen of the world. And if he could have found a way to use it for good, I think that would have been a big thing. Not for ego, though. Which, I mean, as climbers, we're all always spraying and talking about stuff for ego. But part of that is also like having sponsors and being required to share things, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> Yes, we've buried the lead long enough. Um, well, let's talk about this book. You know, and w- when you previewed it to me, you basically kind of told me it's sort of a tell-all of a relationship that you had that was abusive, that was within the climbing world, that you've decided to get that out there as well for people to understand what you went through and maybe as, as Steph Davis was for you to, I suppose, help other people 
you know, share your emotions and, and realize that they have a kinship with what you did and, and look at you now and like, you know, say that this, this can be done. And, and as you said, you can, you can draw things from it, and not let it destroy you. So let's talk about the book. What, what is the, what is the story there? Oh man, I've been working on it for like five years, ever since I escaped this relationship. And um, it was really hard for me to write at first because I had such bad PTSD from this guy that, I mean, I would just like start crying and shaking and like I like couldn't physically write it. But I let enough time pass and enough therapy <laughs> um, that I was finally able this summer to like sit down and get it done. So yeah, the, the story of it though. Um, so I was 19, I was in college and I met this guy climbing in Salt Lake and we started climbing together and we started dating very quickly. And he was just like magnetic. I mean, he was very charming. We went climbing all the time. He was very energetic, which I now know was actually manic. He struggled with bipolar disorder, which he told me early on, but I didn't see the full like impact of that until much later in our relationship till I was like already like very sucked into everything that was going on. So within like a month of meeting this guy, we were climbing pretty much every day and going mostly down to Zion because his parents had a house near St. George. Um, and he was really pushing me in my trad climbing. At that point, I'd pretty much just only trad climbed up to like 5'8", and I was still like super new at it and like not pushing myself. And he just like completely threw me in the deep end, which was really good for my climbing in a way um, because I got a lot better really quickly. But it was also like horrifying. <laughs> I was like, I'd only done like a 5'7 in Eldo, and now I'm like on a 5'11 in Zion, like shitting myself like, oh, God, like, you know, I was 19 years old and I was just like so smitten with this guy. And um, like a month into our relationship, he convinced me to go down with him to Patagonia. And I mean, I had never done any like super serious alpine climbing before. Like I'd climbed Rainier and like, you know, I'd walked on a glacier and I'd outdoor climbed, but I'd never done like something of that magnitude before. But he was like totally convincing me that it would be fine. You know, he was like, oh, yeah, you've got the skills. You're a great partner. You're going to be awesome. We'll try to climb Fitzroy. And I was like, yeah, OK, whatever. So we went down to Patagonia like two months into dating. And at this point, I had seen like a little bit of his violent tendencies and his struggle with his mental health. And I guess like content warning here as well for people who struggle with it. But um, he like had a lot of suicidal ideation all the time. He self-harmed a lot and he would just cycle between mania and depression constantly. And it really just was sad to see now, like looking back at it. But at the time, I mean, I was a teenager. <laughs> I was alone with this guy in Argentina and I like had no idea how to handle his episodes. He was also abusing like a lot of different substances. And at the time I was very just like hands off. I was like, you do you, you know, if it doesn't affect me, do whatever you want. But then like I started to get kind of caught up in his wild ride basically so like in argentina we had a lot of experiences with drug dealers and him going through withdrawals from certain drugs because he ran out or forgot we tried to climb like the north pillar of fitzroy and we never got a chance to like make a real attempt because of avalanches it was a really bad season that year anyone who's there is like january 2017 um it was horrible like nobody was summoning anything so we just like sat in a tent while it snowed and just like rotted but anyway, yeah, it was just like kind of a shit show of a trip. And it was my first time out of the United States um, as well. So that was like an extra burden. So anyway, yeah, down there with this guy, everything was going wrong. He was like losing his mind constantly and like being super violent and hurting himself and threatening me. And I ran out of money because I'd only had like a month to prepare for this trip. And, you know, I'm a teenager in college. I didn't have like any money saved up. So as soon as I ran out of money, I was like totally reliant on him. And that meant he got to make all the decisions. So I was just kind of like 
dragged along at whatever he wanted to do. And I ended up getting dysentery, actually, while we were down there from E. coli. So I had hemorrhagic dysentery, which was not fun. <laughs> the hospital Oof. I was at only had one bathroom, and I'll spare people the like gory details, but it was very bad. <laughs> um, it took me a long time to recover from that, actually. And my doctors think that's part of the reason I developed some of these other chronic illnesses, because my body went through like so much trauma from that and from breaking my ankle later on that year. But we can talk about that later, <laughs> potentially. So anyway, I survived this like horrible trip to Argentina and we got back to the United States and kept climbing together. And I kept trying to like leave him. But whenever I tried to leave him, he would threaten me and say that he would like kill me or kill himself or kill the cops if I called the cops. And he would take my phone all the time and like hold me hostage, basically not let me leave. It was really, really bad for like six or seven months. So it was this pretty horrific arc, I guess, that we had together. And so the book kind of follows like how I got sucked in to all of this, first of all, because my dad was actually a police officer. So I learned all about domestic violence and abuse growing up. And I was like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. Right. Until it did. And I got sucked in with this guy. So the book kind of follows like how that happened. And then our trip to Patagonia and then coming back to the United States and these months of hell that I lived through and how I finally escaped him. The whole story in one very short synopsis. Right. And I mean, you're, you're, it's interesting. You're, you're sort of smiling and, and kind of chatting about this whole story, but it's so heavy. And I, I mean, it's the only, I mean, it's the way we cope with things like this, certainly. So, um, yeah. but, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious about like, you know, the six or seven months, especially back in the States. Um, what, what do you think the impression? that your friends and family had of what was going on and you know had you pulled away from them had he isolated you from from that kind of thing because i think that's pretty common as well um yeah. but maybe maybe you have a have a hindsight sort of view now talking with your friends and family at the time if they were like oh everything's fine or if they had their concerns or yeah what, was, they, what did it look like from the outside i guess now that you you escaped as you said and and have been able to to look back on it with them. Yeah, so they knew it was really bad. I don't think they knew just how bad it was, but they knew it was bad because he threatened them, actually. Um, my sister like sent me some screenshots of some texts that he had sent her, actually, recently, so I could use it in the book. And it just like kind of blew my mind that I like let him get away with that, almost. But when you're in that situation, you feel so powerless. I mean, like I said, he had full control over my phone. He would like text people for me. He would post on social media for me. So I've now since either deleted or edited those posts. But yeah, he kind of made this perception to the outside world that we were just this happy climbing couple that were so dedicated and like trying so hard together. But my family and friends knew like shit was bad. <laughs> um, he isolated me from them very well, which abusers are really good at doing that. Um, he completely pushed me away from my family. Um, I didn't talk to them very much throughout that relationship. And I had to do like kind of like the apology tour afterward and explain to them why and like what had happened and kind of mend those relationships, which was really hard. But I think in the end, it actually made us closer now that they know what happened and what I went through. And, you know, I apologized and we worked it out. Um, my friends also knew it was really bad. Like the people I was living with at the time, like he would often say he was going to like drive up to Logan because he lived in Salt Lake. He was like, I'm going to drive up to Logan and like, find you or I'm going to kill myself on your porch or like he would make all of these threats. And so my roommates knew it was bad. And I also like didn't really see my friends that much. So he made me drop out of college 
So I like unenrolled from USU first semester and I basically was just like under his control that entire time. So I was like on trips with him, climbing with him. It was always in his car, so I couldn't get out and go anywhere else. If I like texted a friend, I would always just like tell them what was happening and then say, don't respond to this. And then I would delete it so that he wouldn't see it. It was just like pretty wild (laughs) for quite a while. And eventually, like I had to call the cops to like help me escape because um, I knew he was going to be able to like come find me. So I ended up moving. I had to get a different car. Um, I had to block him on everything. Like it was pretty serious. The important question I guess I have is what what happened or when did you then suddenly break the spell as it were? I mean, it almost mm-hmm. feels like that, right? You 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 decided like that's enough or I have this chance or I'm I got to yeah. I got to do this. And th- and that's a really I think like the the big question with a lot of these relationships that you know, people get out of before it's too late. Um, yeah. There has to be some moment. What was the moment or what was the time or what was the thing for you that made you call the cops, made you finally like sort of yeah. have the courage, I guess, is really the, 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 the thing it was. Yeah, it really did take a lot of courage because of the threats that he would make if I did call or if I did try to escape. Um, so I'd actually tried to leave him many times before. But he would always find me and manipulate me into getting back with him. There's like a reason, I guess, I talk in almost like a defensive way about it because other women who have survived abuse are often like targeted for this. They're, you know, that people always ask them, like, why didn't you just leave? And Mm -hmm. I think there is this like common myth um, about that. So it is really hard. You are almost like under a spell. And over the years, I've learned a lot about like the cycle of abuse and how to break it. And I've helped um, actually a friend recently get out of an abusive relationship which was really rewarding to see her thriving now. But um, yeah, at the time, I mean, I had tried to escape so many times before when his violence had just like escalated to the point where it was just like intolerable, but it was unsuccessful so many times. The time that it was finally successful, the final straw, he had been base jumping actually at the Prune Bridge in Idaho. At the end of our relationship, he had decided he was going to become a base jumper, um, one of his delusions of grandeur, and he still base jumps apparently. Um, and he made me film it. <laughs> he was like, you're going to set up this camera and you're going to fly a drone and you're going to film this. And he did his jump and it looked horrible, of course, because he had no training at all. He had just bought a used base rig and started jumping off of things. So I filmed it and he like got really mad at me that I hadn't done a good enough job filming it. And I was like, sorry, like it's hard to fly a drone in the wind and also operate a DSLR and like do all this other stuff. Um, so we started driving back towards Salt Lake because he was going to like meet up with some drug dealer And I fell asleep and I woke up to a cop asking, like, whose pipe is that? And he had left his weed, like, on the um, driver's seat of the car and he'd, like, gotten out to pee on the side of the road. And um, at that point, I mean, there was, like, no stopping the wheels that were in motion. And he got a couple of charges for, like, possession because, you know, Utah. And we got back on the road. They didn't book him for some reason. And he was super mad at me. He was like, why didn't you hide the pipe, you know? Like, why did you let them charge me? My life is over. And he was, like, screaming at me. And he like kicked the windshield and he like broke one of the windows in the truck. And it was like, he like threw the rear view mirror out the window. And he was like trying to crash his truck actually into the barrier of the interstate on I-15. And at this point it was like one in the morning and we're like careening down I-15 and he's trying to kill us both. I'm like yanking the steering wheel out of his hand and we get to Salt Lake and the deal with his like drug dealer doesn't go as well as he wants. Like he doesn't end up getting his drugs and it's like this whole thing. And he like freaks out over it and like totally loses it. Um, And he's just like talking about like how bad he wants to die and all this stuff. And I'm just like 
horrified at this point. Like I'm just stuck in this truck with him and he's just like hurting himself and breaking things. And so he drives down to his parents' house near Lehigh and um, he like goes in and he's like, this is it. Like, I'm going to kill myself. And I'm like, you can't do that. Like, you know, all of the normal things you would say to someone undergoing an episode like this, because despite all the things he'd done to me, I still didn't want him to die. You know, obviously, like he was still my boyfriend at the time. And um, so anyway, he like went into the garage and locked himself in the garage and I couldn't get in to stop him. So I was like, I'm not going to like let this happen on my watch. So even though he had threatened to kill me if I called the cops, I called the cops and I like ran outside and I was on the phone with 911 and um, I was like pulling all of my stuff out of his truck to like transfer to my car. And um, he like came outside and he saw that I was on the phone with the cops. And so I was like, well, that means he's going to kill me. So I just started running like I ran for my life, basically. And thankfully, like the cops got there after I'd made it like a few blocks and he didn't get to me. Um, but it just kind of like, was this like reality check for me where it was like, if I let this continue, like I either get out or I die. And that's like a pretty heavy place (laughs) to be in. Like you make this decision, like you get to your breaking point after everything escalates, but before it can enter the honeymoon phase again is what they call it. Um, where you get out or you let it re-enter that honeymoon phase. And I realized like there was never going to be a honeymoon phase after something like that. Like when you are going to kill somebody, like <laughs> you don't go back to loving that person. Like the, that's the end of the road, you know? Um, and so like he asked to talk to me and his mom was there, like it was at his parents' house. And um, she was like, oh, I'll get you a hotel or something. Cause you just had this horrible all nighter. And I knew he would have like manipulated her to find out where I was staying. And I was like, no, absolutely not. And I got in my car and I drove away and I never talked to him again. And it was, it did take a lot of courage. Like a lot of me was like, am I going to go back to him? Like, is he going to find me somehow? Um, But I actually ended up driving straight to City of Rocks in Idaho because I knew I wouldn't have cell service and I knew he wouldn't find me there. And I just like spent a whole day soloing around City of Rocks and just like recovering, like reeling from this experience I'd just had. And that was kind of like the beginning of my healing journey um, before I moved and changed everything about my life. But yeah, it was really hard at the time. I was so shell-shocked for a long time. Like I had no idea what was going on. And I just climbed my heart out because I didn't know how else to process it. So I like went to Squamish and I, I like spent that summer just climbing, climbing, climbing because I didn't know what else to do with myself. So was there ever any sort of consequences in his life other than these sort of maybe drug charges and things like that? Not that I know of. I wish I had pressed charges when I had the chance, but I think like the statute of limitations is up. Um, I talked to the cop at the school I was working at last year about it, actually. Um, I might still be able to like take him to court if I wanted to. But I mean, at this point in my life, I just I don't know if I like want to go down that road. The biggest thing for me, like, I don't care what he does as long as he doesn't hurt anyone else. So that's the big thing for me. Like, if he was going to hurt someone else, then I don't know how I would go about handling that. Um, Because I just don't want him to still be out there and like be able to do this to another girl, you know? Right. But it's, I mean... I guess you part partially have to just I mean you've moved on like literally you're 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 <laughs> you're beyond this. I mean you're writing about it. We're talking about it right now which will be public um which is an interesting and big step in a way. Um Yeah. I've in, talked about it a help. bit before but right. yeah, this is the first time like all the details are coming out and um it is a little bit scary but yeah, I've gotten to this point over the last 5 years where I'm like if I can control my story and like tell my story then that's really empowering to me than just like living with this on my own like showing people like this is something that some climbers might be dealing with and that's pretty scary to think about you know like 
some teenage girl under the control of this much older guy, you know, who's like ruining her life for months and months on end, you know. Right. And and maybe killing her or at least, yeah. you know, hurting her. Um, yeah. I have, uh, I mean, what did the, you know, you, you went and went climbing for a few months, but obviously a recovery from this is ongoing. What, yeah. what did it look like? Let's talk about the arc of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, besides the soloing in City Rocks. Like, yeah. that wasn't enough or may- maybe the climbing was enough. Like, what, what did it look like? I mean, you went back yeah. to co- school as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Sounds yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, so a big part of it was, like, mending those relationships with friends and family and also just, like, getting back on my feet because I had no money. I mean, I was under his control and he didn't want me to work very much. So I was, like, barely scraping by and, like, able to feed myself. So I, like, got a job. Um, I was, like, substitute teaching and, like, tutoring at the university. And then I, like, got a new place to live and I got a different car. Um, I went to therapy for a year. There's this great uh, organization in Logan called CAPSA and they help, like, women who've been through abusive situations they have like a shelter and they provide like free therapy and group stuff so i went to therapy there and i like did this awesome domestic violence like support group which made me feel like so much better (laughs) like i was like wow i'm actually sane. like there's reasons for all of this and i learned about the cycle of abuse and i learned about their manipulation tactics and all that so i kind of had to recover from it like physically emotionally mentally financially like all of these different ways And um, it did take a really long time. I think writing about it helped a lot, too, because that's like a really good way to process it and get it off your chest. So it's not just your burden to bear, I guess, in a way. And then I think another big part of my healing was like reclaiming climbing for myself. So one of the things that created a lot of like contention and like a reason he didn't like me very much, I guess, was I got sponsored during the course of our relationship. And he always had this weird delusion. He was like, I'm going to make you famous. You know, he would always say like weird stuff like that and try to like take pictures and videos of me. But then when I like got sponsored, he was like mad about it. He's like, I should be the one getting free gear. I'm the one who took those pictures of you and who pushed you in your climbing and all this stuff. So he would get like really mad about that. And he would always tell me too. He's like, you sound like a guy when you talk about climbing and, you know, you're like a scared climber. And he would like tell me all these really negative things. So a big part of my healing was actually like reclaiming climbing for myself and realizing like, you know, actually I can do climbing and I'm not necessarily afraid. And I don't know, I just had to like go out and do a ton of climbing, I think, to get to that point. And that's a big reason why now like I do a lot of mental coaching for my clients because a lot of them have been through traumatic situations or chronic illness or a lot of the things that I can relate to. And I've been on that journey and I have like a lot of tips that I think like help them to think about it, whether it's coming from stoicism or self-compassion or like different angles like that. So um, I guess through climbing, I found lots of other tools to help myself, um, just like in my general life and my recovery from that relationship. Yeah, it's it's interesting you're talking about, you know, realizing what you were in and why it worked like that. Because I would imagine that someone like yourself, you know, this this independent person who is always adventurous and, you know, willing to take on challenges. Yeah, you probably kind of like as we you know, sort of use the metaphor of a spell, you you probably woke up and was like, how did that happen? Like, why, why did I of all people, you know, again, this person who saw it and knew what it was, and I'll mm-hmm. avoid that. And I mean, I, and that's not just you, I think that it's got to be part of all of these situations of, 
Yeah. And, and then maybe guilt and like, shame. how did I let that happen and shame <laughs> yeah. and things like that. So definitely. Um, yeah. I used to have I mean, a lot of shame about it. Like I didn't want to tell people about it because I was mm-hmm. like, again, like how could I have gotten sucked into this? Right, it can weak. happen to anybody. Right. I mean, these, these abusers are master manipulators. They know how to get under your skin and how to make you behave the way they want you to behave. And it does take a lot to break that spell. You have to have enough people a, like looking out for you or telling you like, hey, that's messed up or, you know, you can get out of this. And actually, one of the times I tried to escape him that was unsuccessful, I managed to make a post online and a bunch of people reached out to me about it. Like, I remember like Mike Lebecki and like a few other people like reached out to me and were like, I'll beat this guy up. Like, screw that. Like, no one should be treating you that way. And I think that also kind of helped me realize like how bad it was and that I did need to get out. And it wasn't long after that that I finally did escape. But yeah, it's really hard when they're making threats to you you know if you leave so it's like how do i get out if i'm threatened (laughs) you know so you have to kind of have people in your corner and a support system left in some way um or just take that leap on your own like i did honestly well Um, yeah and you've been worn down and like i mean i would imagine you're almost exhausted uh, at certain points of they've they've worn you to the point where you you know you don't have this fire it's just like you're you're there and in a daze and in sort of zombie mode and what am I going to do about it? Yeah. It's really interesting you say that. Cause one of the things he would always say to me towards the end of the relationship was like, you don't even care. You're just a zombie. Like he'd be hurting himself. And I would literally like, you know, you'll talk about fight or flight or freeze or faint. That's like kind of the new thing they say in therapy. I would literally just like check out mentally and just dissociate because I just couldn't deal with what was happening around me as he would like hurt himself or do whatever, like destroy a house or something. Um, so yeah, I would always dissociate and he'd call me a zombie. So yeah, I literally was like a shell of a person Sorry, for a long I time. I don't want to sort of read No, no, you're, you're fine. It's absolutely correct. And I am honestly okay to talk about it now because okay. I've like done so much work around it and I'm ready to like be an advocate and to, like tell my story like for a reason, you know? Well, let me ask you this, like, you know, you, you mentioned Mike Lebecki Khan and, and I'll beat this guy up or whatever. And like, honestly, that's, I think that's like this very guy reaction. Um, it's the kind of reaction I always have. Like someone whose intention is probably like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm going to show how dedicated I am to this person who's my friend by, you know, saying I would risk my life for them. But was it at all helpful? I mean, it, it sounds like maybe it was, but I always feel like those kinds of reactions may just like, I mean, because there you are, like you, you, you even said, like, I didn't want him to die. I, you know, I, and, and that's all part of this mix of like, you know, still being in this relationship and caring about the person. And, you know, so I don't know if it's very helpful. I've, I've thought about that a lot because that's my gut reaction too. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for a lot of people, have him walk in the door and put a bullet in his head, like (laughs) is sort of this manly, like, you know, beat my chest kind of reaction. But I just can't imagine that's helpful for someone that's in in it. No, you're you're totally correct. And um, his reaction was more than just that. You know, he sure, also sure. like told me I should be advocating for myself and that I deserved better. And well, that's what a lot of people were telling me. So even though like I got sucked in a couple more times after that point that I made that post, it did open my eyes just a little bit more because you just have to plant that seed a little bit for people who are going through this. And then over time, they'll eventually like get out of it, hopefully. <laughs> But yeah, no, that that definitely had a big influence on me that like there were people who cared, A, who would like care enough to send me a message or something and that B, like they knew it wasn't okay. Like I wasn't just like crazy. 
Because that's one of the things that abusers will make you think is like, oh, you're overreacting or this isn't that bad or you'll never find anyone as good as me. So like they find all these things to say to get in your head and try to make you stay. And now I don't tolerate like anything. <laughs> I'm like well, yeah. super independent. And, like I have the word autonomy tattooed on my arm because I'm like, I'm never going to give up my independence <laughs> to someone else ever again. And that's like a visual reminder of that, like that we all deserve to make our own choices and we shouldn't be controlling other people, you know? I, I was going to ask you that as maybe a last question as far as your recovery and who you are now. Um, well, actually, I actually have two more questions about that. But I mean, it, so it does color relationships you have now, you know? And I, and I was kind of wondering, like, in the recovery, like, did it take a long time? It sounds like there's still some gates closed, so to speak. But, um, you know, to, to open a relationship with someone at that level again, I mean, that seems like a probably um, a landmine that, that is out there for you to step on it, if you will, opening yeah. a relationship and having, having some of these feelings come back or, or feelings you didn't know you had buried come out and things like that. Yeah, totally. I think this is an issue for a lot of abuse survivors is like, how do you trust a man again? Or if, it, you know, I guess men get abused too. So how do you just trust a partner again in general? So yeah, my first relationship that I had after it um, actually started like not soon after I escaped. But I told him, I was like, I just went through a lot. Like, I'm not ready for anything crazy right now. And he was really respectful, thankfully. But I still had a lot of like residual issues from it with him. Like, especially going on a climbing trip with a guy in his car. I had like a really big block about that because that's one of the big ways he had controlled me is we'd go on all these climbing trips, but it was always in his car. So I couldn't get out. And so I like had a big block about that. I would always be like, I want to go separately or we need to take my car or like something like that. Well, um, so just, I just named her episode, uh, lock the doors and drive away because she said that <laughs> so many times with about her van. Like mm. that was her... Like she had this like release valve that if shit went bad, like I can lock doors and drive away, you know? So it's, you yeah. know, I, I, so it's interesting you just said that because it's like, yeah, you have this like metal box that you can leave mm -hmm. in and park it somewhere and, you know, lock the doors and be relatively safe inside of it. Yeah, definitely. I also was really worried about just like going climbing because our relationship was like almost entirely climbing. And I don't want to make the book sound like it's all just about the abuse, like that's a huge part of it, but it's also the climbing we were doing. So since our relationship was so much climbing, I was always worried about running into him at climbing areas and like what would happen? Like, would he try to hurt me or follow me or like cause a scene? Like I had no idea how he was going to react. Um, and now I'm at the point where I don't think he would do anything and I'm not like super worried about it. But the first few years I was super hyper vigilant. I mean, I was always like scared and like locking my doors and kind of like looking over my shoulder. Like, is he here? Like, because that would be like my worst nightmare to be out in the middle of nowhere but it just so happens that he's there too and I like can't get out fast enough um I had pretty bad PTSD for a long time like lots of nightmares and yeah the recovery was definitely like colored by that and it impacted my relationships for a long time now it doesn't like have so much of a bearing besides that like I don't tolerate any bullshit from like anybody that I date I'm just like no absolutely not like that's not acceptable behavior you know so I think it's just made me like a better advocate for myself, like better able to set boundaries as well. Perfect. So, you know, you mentioned the coaching and I just, I just want to kind of do a quick question about that because I'm curious about whether this period in your life 
the trauma, everything else plays into your coaching? And do you sort of like use it and reveal this to clients that this is a place that maybe you've come from that gives you some knowledge about mental training and things like that? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't like give them the gory details or anything because right, that would be wasting our time on our like calls or whatever. But they definitely know that I'm coming from a place of understanding how those things work. Like I understand what it's like to live with a chronic illness and to have been through surgeries and to have been in an abusive relationship. That was all tied up with climbing too, because that really messed with my mental game and climbing. So I'll give them like a little bit of a nugget just so that they know where I'm coming from and how I have knowledge about this, I guess. And actually, that's a reason a lot of my clients seek me out specifically over other climbing coaches is because they've read some of my posts and they know this is something I'm familiar with. So they can kind of like trust me to give them like a safe space to talk about how that impacts their climbing, because that's something I had to work through to get climbing back in my life in a healthy way. So I tell about it a little bit, but not like in great detail. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, I mean, because people don't want to reveal, reveal that stuff to people who don't have a kernel of understanding. That's, I think, a big part of the problem, right? Is that it's, you know, like you said, there's some shame in it. And there's, there's, you know, and I'm not even talking just about abuse, but just feeling weak or feeling like you aren't good at something. Or, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we've all dealt with that since we were kids, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that seems like a, a good place to kind of couch a session is to talk about that. Um, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I really make self-compassion a huge part of my like coaching philosophy because a lot of climbers lack self-compassion. As we know, like we all are always just like hating on our bodies and like diets. And this has become a huge conversation in climbing recently, as you know. Um, so I think self-compassion can actually help athletes like a ton, especially athletes who have been through trauma. I mean, you really have to be kind to yourself to understand like, oh, this is why I feel this way. This is why I'm afraid when I'm climbing. This is why I feel crummy when I'm training. Um, and then you can use that self-compassion to, you know, treat yourself nicely and give yourself what you need, which will ultimately help you become a better athlete who's better able to perform. So I think like in the context of that, it really, really helps. Well, I asked um, Hazel Finlay about this because she's, you know, that that's a big part of her training is mental training. And yeah, if it ever felt like, you know, clients either revealed too much or like got out of her even you know, ethically professional wheelhouse. Oh yeah, I remember her saying like, that. She's like, I'm not a therapist. And I, right, yeah, same, right. same way. I yeah, mean, it seems sure. like you probably have opened the door to that even wider in terms of like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. We can, we can kind of go around this in a climbing context, but yes. we, you, you need to talk to a professional about these kind of things. I mean, do you run Absolutely. into that situation? Totally. I make it super clear with my clients. Yeah, I'm right. like, we'll talk about things as they have an impact on your climbing. But like you, I like I always will tell them like, be in therapy too, of course, you know, like I am not a mm -hmm. therapist. I am here to help you right. like figure out how to fall and not be afraid or figure right. out how to enjoy climbing again when you feel like you just like see it as an obligation or a punishment because well, that's of something that's I happened think, to you. I think, um, isn't that something too that, that Hazel specifically said about enjoying climbing? Yeah, that's honestly too. what I do like with my right. clients is like, how do we enjoy climbing again? Because a lot of them have gotten to this point where they're like, I feel horrible all the time or I'm just like so fixated on the grade or I can't climb well because I'm so preoccupied with falling or whatever it might be. So I think kind of like working through some of that background does reveal helpful bits and pieces to get them to a point where they can feel like they enjoy it and like the fear isn't ruining their experience. Mm hmm. And then finally, I guess we'll go back to the beginning, something you said around this, the conversation around stoicism of 
how it taught you to sort of like, you know, not let it destroy you, but actually pull knowledge, wisdom, lessons from even even the bad shit, which is a big part of that. Like it, it, it and in fact, uh, I think a big part of that is not even that moral judgment. It's just something that happened. And so now we mm-hmm. choose either to react to it this way or to react to it this way. Um, yeah. It's not evil. It's not good or bad. Exactly. Know, I mean, that I don't necessarily feel that way, but I'm talking about the philosophy. <laughs> so what, what, what is it? I mean, what do you think you sort of sit on as far as like, well, uh, at least this is what I've learned and this is what it's helped me do and this is what I'm going to do moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, stoicism helped me recover from it, of course, because I realized like, you know, he was mentally ill and I don't want to villainize people who have bipolar disorder by any means. One of my best friends actually has it and she manages it super well. But, you know, it definitely had an impact on our relationship. And although it can explain some behavior, it can't excuse behavior. You know, he was still making a choice to take harmful actions and to like disturb me and to harm me. So, you know, I think we can say that's bad (laughs) in a way, because when someone's harming you, that's never really a good thing. Right. But in terms of stoicism, we try not to label things as good and bad. So I guess you could label it as like if something in the world can happen, it will happen. I think Aurelius has a quote about that. So don't be surprised. So people like this exist. You know, these people are out here. You know, these kinds of things can happen to you. It's happened. You can't change it. So learn from it and move on. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's not a helpful reaction. And of course, we're still going to have emotions about that. Our body will like store the trauma and everything. But I think at the end of the day, we can look back on it and think about what we learned. So in my case, like I learned what a lot of the red flags are for abuse. I learned how to handle someone who is having like a mental breakdown, like an episode like that. I learned that I don't handle situations like that very well. Like watching someone hurt themselves is really, really hard. And it's something when you can't get out that is just like very disturbing. Um, And I I really sincerely hope that he gets the help that he needs because I don't want him to harm himself or other people, you know. And so I think stoicism kind of helped me arrive at that conclusion, whereas before it was just like, I want revenge. (laughs) Now I'm kind of more of like, I just hope he heals so he doesn't hurt anybody else kind of thing. So, yeah, I think stoicism kind of helped me like not harbor a ton of ill will towards him. It was more just like I was a young girl and he was very sick and this is kind of how it ended up panning out. And it was a crazy story with a lot of climbing mixed in, but here I am now. And it honestly made me like take control of my life in a really new way. I wasn't like a passive player in my life anymore. It made me realize like I need to make active decisions to live the kind of life I want to live. So if I want to be a teacher and climb on all of my breaks, then I'm going to do that. If I want to write a book, I'm going to do that. If I want to go climbing and own it and coach it, and do all these things, I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to let anybody make me feel lesser or make me feel like I'm not in the right place if I feel like what I'm doing aligns with my true nature. That's a big part of stoicism is like, what is your true nature? And can you actually follow that? So I really honor that now in myself. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Fallon for connecting and being so open. Even after all these years, it's not easy to talk about that stuff. But she rolls through it. If you want to know more about Fallon or even get in touch, you can find her on Instagram at Fallon Climbs. That's probably the best place to talk to her. 
And yeah, her book, unpublished, unseen, ready to go. If there's anyone interested in helping her with that, get in touch. Okay, everyone knows it. At least here in North America, the dark time has started. The dark time. Cruising towards the ultimate darkness on the 20th, 21st of December. So it's a good time to check the knots of your friends who deal with seasonal depression, holiday depression, those things that get under our skin this time of year, especially if we're outdoor climbers who don't ice climb and our favorite area is now covered in snow. Anyhow, reach out to people. This is the time of year to do that and check their emotional and mental knots. Perfection of character is this to live each day as if it were your last without frenzy without apathy, without pretense. Dwell on the beauty of life. Watch the stars and see yourself running with them.